Well, welcome everybody to this week's edition of my podcast. I am delighted this week to be speaking to Simon Anholt. He is one of the world, if not the world's leading public diplomacy specialist. But more than that, he's a very curious thinker and has a really admirable quality of simplifying very complex challenges into pretty simple equations. He's got a new book out, so I'm hoping that uh, we're going to have the opportunity to talk about that literally just out in the last few days. I've had the privilege of knowing Simon for, I think it's over 15 years. You may not recall Simon, but I was probably still wearing shorts when I first met you. And you've been a bit of a guru to me all the while. I think I've read I think I've read all of your books and I'm one of your biggest fans. I'm probably announcing this to you publicly for the first time. I don't think I've told you privately. But not only have I learned from what you write and the talks that you've given, but I have been amused as well. And I love the, uh, the curiosity that you have and the creativity you bring to public diplomacy. I know that you've been busy over probably what's two decades now, I think, um, advising leaders all across the world. In fact, a lot of that experience you bring to bear in your, your new book called The Good Country Equation. But more than that, you start to talk about some of the challenges facing the world, everything from climate change to, of course, pandemics, but racism. All of these have really come to the fore in the last years or even in the last months. And you have boldly set out some proposals, at least, for how to fix the world's problems. You refer to it as repairing the world in one generation. Simon Anhalt, it's a pleasure to speak to you. Tell us a little bit about this book that you've just, you've just launched. Well, Marcus, thank you very much for that extremely kind introduction. If you were wearing short trousers when we first met, so was I. I don't, <laughs> I'm not convinced that I'm all that much older <laughs> than you. But anyway, we'll let that rest for a moment. If it was a hot day, we probably both were. I know exactly how much older you are than me, and it's 13 years. Oh, really? Okay, okay. Well, I'm better preserved <laughs> than you are in that case. Oh! <laughs> so having started this off on a combative note, so The Good Country Equation, it's the first book I've written in five years, and that makes it quite an important one to me, because it's during the last five years that the whole idea of what I call the good country has emerged. And so I've had to pack quite a lot of thinking into a relatively short book. Yes, it's about the state of the world. It's about the mess we're in. And it's also about how I think we may be able to start getting out of that mess. But there's a problem with books on that subject. And that is that they're usually unreadable, at least to me. Maybe it's just me, but every time a book about the state of the world comes out, I buy it because it's my subject and I should know what people are saying. And I just never, ever get past the first few pages. It's partly because the subject is inherently depressing. And one of the things I always say is just because these things are serious doesn't mean they have to be boring. This is a very, very serious topic, but it's also, let's be honest, a fascinating topic. And talking about the world and the richness and diversity and complexity of humanity is a beautiful, beautiful subject. Let's not forget that. And talking about it with humor, which is what I try to do, doesn't mean that I'm not taking it seriously. It just means that I want people to stay with me. And if you want people to stay with you, you've really got to entertain as well as inform. So most of the books I read are basically textbooks. 
they're written in black and white. And that's a very, very dreary experience. You just can't keep reading a textbook for more than a few minutes. We're not school children anymore. So what I decided to do with this book, which is a little bit unusual, is to make it primarily autobiographical. I've made it a kind of comical travelogue. So it's full of anecdotes and episodes of my experience as a policy advisor, working with the leaders of 50 or more countries all over the world, and the weird and funny and extraordinary and memorable things that always happen when I sit down with those leaders and we start talking about the future of the country and their world. But then woven into those anecdotes and stories and descriptions of people and places and events, I start to weave in these learnings that I gradually came to about what's really wrong with the world, and then finally what we can do to try and start fixing it. I'm going to put you on the spot. What are some of the ways in which we can go about fixing these many challenges and complex challenges, I should add, that we face as humanity at the moment? I call it the good country equation because it does actually boil down to a very simple equation. The equation is almost ridiculously simple. It says everything in the world that's going wrong, all of the grand challenges, what followers of the United Nations will refer to as the sustainable development goals, all of those things have one thing in common, and that is that they're all caused by us, by human beings. So all the problems in the world are basically caused by two things, by the way that people behave and by the way that countries behave. So the way that people behave, it's our everyday acts, omissions and commissions that cause the problems of climate change and pandemics and conflict and human rights abuses and all of the other things that the world is facing today. The way that countries behave, or rather more specifically the way that governments behave, is that they don't work together enough to tackle these problems. By definition, these grand challenges like climate change and pandemics and all the rest of it are much too big and much too globalized for any single country to be able to tackle them on its own. America can't fix climate change even if it wanted to. China can't fix the pandemic even if it wanted to. The European Union can't fix migration. Mexico can't fix drug trafficking. These are great big globalized distributed problems. The only way we can fix them is if countries work together. And the interesting thing I discovered working in all of these countries all over the world and talking to the leading experts in these challenges in every country is that, of course, we actually know the solutions to all of these problems. It's not that we don't know how to fix them. We do know how to fix them. But the reason we don't fix them is because the resources and the effort required are greater than the resources and efforts that any one country can bring to bear against them. And we just don't cooperate and collaborate consistently enough or thoroughly enough or energetically enough to be able to make real progress against most of them. So two things wrong with the world. One is the behavior of people. The other is the behavior of countries. Fundamental tendency to compete instead of collaborating. Those are the things we need to fix. So what the book tells is a story of how countries, governments, might be encouraged to collaborate an awful lot more and compete just a tiny bit less because, as I argue in the book, there are very real, very immediate economic benefits in doing so if you do it in the right way. So I'm not asking countries to be charitable. I'm not saying rich countries, you've got to give more money to poor countries or any of that kind of 19th century philanthropy construct because plainly it doesn't work all that well, and plainly it's not solving our global challenges. All countries have to come together as equals in the fight against all of these problems, and they all have to uh, learn how to change the fundamental culture of governance from one that's typically been 
primarily competitive to one that becomes primarily collaborative. But this doesn't involve sacrificing anything. When President Trump says America first, he's not saying anything particularly shocking or original. Of course, if you're elected to run a country, you put the interests of that country first. That's a statement of the obvious. But what I think is rather depressing about the implication of what he's saying, as, as I understand it, is that he thinks that means everybody else has to come last. And that's just not the case. You can come first and you can help others to come first. And you can... The gold standard of good governance in the 21st century is harmonizing your domestic and your international issues. So you do the right thing for your own people and your own territory. And at the same time, you do the right thing for the people of other countries and the rest of the planet. It's perfectly possible. And in fact, it makes better policy if you do it. Enlightened self-interest. Two things surface from what you just said. The first is values, the values we hold as individuals and citizens. I get a sense that the younger generation are much more progressive in terms of their values and, dare I say, their, their internationalism. I read a book last year called Factfulness. I suspect you've, you've read it too. It talks about the way that actually most individuals have more in common with some of their peers in other countries than they do necessarily with their immediate associated set in the country in which they are. I've, I haven't described that very well, but um, certainly looking at my kids, they seem to have, frankly, better values than our generation. The second is um, multilateralism. And I, I'd be interested to get your views. My sense is that we have pulled away from multilateralism with the election of nationalist leaders all over the world and nationalist movements. And if your provocation or your proposal is that we need to encourage more multilateralism, more cooperation. What is your prognosis in terms of how quickly you think we will come to that realization and whether we will start to address what I see as, frankly, flaws in our international governance structure that are required to be addressed before we can get that level of cooperation? We certainly agree that the multilateral system and the way that globalization has been managed or mismanaged up until now is seriously flawed. The argument of my book is absolutely not, let's go back to a more globalized world. Let's try to somehow abolish the nationalist instinct, because clearly the thing has been mishandled. Globalization, I don't think ultimately is a choice. I think it's an instinct of human nature. I think ever since the first human beings walked out of Africa 60 or 70,000 years ago and stopped being a single tribe facing a single set of problems, the driving human instinct has been the instinct to get us back together again and be once again a single tribe facing a single set of challenges. And we've done that. And we're now at a point in history where we really have achieved, if you like, that reunification of the human species. And it doesn't look great uh, because we've allowed too many parts, too many components of that globalization urge to spiral out of control, to be controlled by the wrong interests. Too many politicians are in the hands of corporate interests, we just didn't plan or manage it well enough. And so I think we are talking about some kind of a reset. But I don't happen to believe that trying to reverse or stop globalization is desirable or necessary or even possible. I think we're just too interconnected and the value of the interconnections is too great. And to try to unpick it all to reverse globalization would result in such catastrophic losses of quality of life amongst so many people that it just wouldn't be acceptable. I think the problem is that the thing has allowed itself to get a bad name. 
and it's deserved a bad name through being badly organized. So we certainly do need to manage things differently in the future. You asked about my prognosis. I think this is possible. It's partly possible because some of the more, shall we say, colorful examples of nationalist government prove the old received wisdom that it's somewhat easier. Well, it's a great deal easier to get elected as a nationalist politician than it is to govern as a nationalist politician. The majority of nationalist politicians, populist nationalist politicians, find it relatively easy to get elected by saying the things that they think or they know that people want to hear. But running a country is, of course, an entirely different matter. And as we're seeing all over the world, the majority of populist governments do a very bad job of managing everyday challenges, let alone global pandemics simply because they're just they're there for the wrong reason and they have the wrong background, the wrong experience. They're too ideological. They're not balanced enough. They're not knowledgeable enough. They don't form the right sort of cabinets. So history suggests that populist nationalist governments do tend to become fashionable briefly, uh, but don't stay in power for very much more than a term or two because people begin to realize um, that they don't actually know how to run the country. Now, that may sound complacent, and it's certainly not, because uh, we are living in a very different age from any age that's happened before, and partly because of digital communications. Fads like nationalist populism do have the power to spread everywhere instantly and possibly last a bit longer than in the past. So I'm not expecting that to happen, but I'm hoping it's going to happen. The thing that more than anything else I think is pushing us in the right direction and the reason why I'm feeling unfashionably optimistic about everything and feel more and more so with every year that passes is because of the younger generations. And the more research I do amongst different age groups, the more evident it seems to be that accidentally or deliberately, we've brought up every succeeding generation with a keener sense that they belong to the human species first and their own nation second. So I honestly think that nationalism is quite quickly going out of fashion. And I think that's essential. There's nothing wrong with loving your country. That's a natural thing to do. But to love your nation state, I think, is unnecessary and unwelcome. And it gets in the way of solving the big challenges. I do hope you're right, Simon. I listened to a podcast series from the LSE. It was one of the lectures given on on populism just a few weeks ago. And the conclusion there was that actually part of the response from political leaders to the pandemic has been to invoke more populist policies. So we've seen, I'm going to get the term wrong here, but it's a bringing home of supply chains, a focus on local content, on indigenous equity ownership within businesses, on certain areas of of industry restricted to local companies only. I do hope you're wrong, but certainly from some of my observations and from where I sit in Africa, it's been one hallmark, I think, of the last few months that countries have turned more inwards. Yes, Um, but they they will. This is absolutely natural. Um, it, It takes a very, very rare politician who has the courage to compete against populism with anything other than populism. One of the arguments I make in the book is that there are other forms of responsible government that fairly quickly demonstrate their real appeal to the public more than populism. So I agree with you. One of the things that worries me is the natural, predictable tendency of politicians to fight populism with populism. But I don't believe that it will stay the course and I don't believe it will last very long because it never has before. And there's nothing in human nature that suggests 
this is going to stick for very long. These experiments of reinsuring and all the rest of it, they're fine. So I'd be the last person to suggest that if populations genuinely want to try these different approaches, these more insular, more inward-looking approaches to managing their economies, managing their societies, to try to prevent people from trying that if that's what they want would not only not be very democratic, it also wouldn't be very effective because if you can't try something that you want, you'll be forever wanting it and you'll be forever curious. So I would say it's not a bad thing that these experiments are happening. It's not a bad thing if people can try their very best to run countries in a different way from the way that's generally been the norm for the last 70 or 80 years. And let's see, for heaven's sake, if it works better, then I'll be the first person to say, great, this works better. If it works badly, then at least people won't feel uh, too much of that anxiety that they've never tried it and they're being forced to try something they don't agree with. Very interesting. Simon, you've talked of the importance of multilateralism and I'm going to use my own term here to describe it, values-based governance. Do you feel that there's a vision for that that anyone is espousing or other than you in your book? Do we have any political leaders who genuinely have set a vision and backing it up with a coherent narrative that defines that vision and some of the means to achieve it? Because my worry is that actually there's an increasingly populist narrative and we lack the global leadership that is setting out an alternative that can guide and lead nations and populations. I sometimes wonder if this kind of talk about inspirational leadership or the lack of it, styles or forms of governance that are based on values, I think all of this is really quite problematic. And I have what is perhaps a typically European taste for competent technocrats. I think countries should be led by people who know how to lead and they should be governed by people who know how to govern. Government is a very, very complex technical business. And yes, of course, because it's about the lives and livelihoods of millions of people, the values must come into it. You need people who are just and fair and who have a strong moral compass. But in the end, what I argue for in the book is not a set of values. I'm not talking about, for example, nations sacrificing themselves for the benefit of other nations. It's nothing like that at all. It's all eminently practical. So, for example, when I say to governments, you need to cooperate and collaborate more with other countries, I'm not saying that because it's some kind of duty that they have or some kind of, some kind of values-based obligation. It's because it's in their interest to do so. And I hope that every single recommendation that I make to governments in the book is backed up by a clear statistics-based measurement of advantage. So, for example, one of the central arguments in the book is that countries, if they want to progress economically, if they want to earn money, if they want to earn foreign revenues, particularly from tourism and foreign investment, and uh, cultural exchanges and major events and exports and all the rest of it, they need a good image. And this idea of national image being a fundamental driver of trade is returning right back to the beginning of my career when I became very, very interested in the images of countries and started measuring them and measuring their impacts. Now, one of the things that I've discovered, and this is the central argument of the book, is that if a country wants to earn more foreign revenues, it needs a good image. But the only way it can get a good image is by behaving in a principled and collaborative way in the international community. The research shows this. 
People don't admire countries that are beautiful or successful or technologically advanced or strong. They admire countries that are good. They admire countries that contribute something to the community in which we all live. So I, as a typical citizen, the countries that I like, aside from my own country, are the ones that I think are working towards a better world for me and my children. The ones who are doing something about climate change or migration or poverty or conflict or inequality. And that dynamic is critically important because it means very simply that if a country wants to do well, it has to do good. It has to be a principled player in the international community. So when I go to governments and say to them, look, you need to collaborate more. Don't be a populist. If you're going to be a populist, be a human populist. Don't be a nationalist. Be a co-nationalist. Be a collectivist, because that will benefit you more economically in the immediate term. This isn't even a long-term argument. This isn't even saying it'll harm you in the short term to be more collaborative, but it'll benefit you in the long term. No, it will benefit you immediately. And that's one of the things that I prove in the book. So it's actually very far removed from values, all of this. It's very, very practical, and it's based on research. I confess I've got through halfway through your book, looking forward to, to completing it. I think if there's the strong case that you referenced It'll be a vital contribution to the ongoing debate around how countries respond to the obvious crisis that we're going through, which is a global crisis. At least we have that recognition amongst leaders. This won't be solved at a national level. It won't be solved, in fact, until we've addressed the challenge the pandemic represents for every single country and every single community. So that's very reassuring to hear. You've left in a more positive mood. I have been when looking at the, the threat of populism and nationalist movements all over the world. I wanted to conclude this, if I may, with something a little more lighthearted mm. um, and to invite you to answer a few questions. I think I've got four lined up for you. So first up, globalization, curse or cure? Both. Both. Oh, cheat. <laughs> Second, I know that you publish a good leader index. Each mm. month you profile the goodest leader, I think you refer to it, yep. and sometimes the ungoodest leader. Mm -hmm. Who is featured in this month? We haven't done it yet. I'm sorry to say we're very behind on that because oh. the launch of my book has got in the way. Would you be able to tell me who you think might be? Who's, who's in the running at least? Every time I and the volunteers sit down and have our editorial meeting, it's the same story. We can find dozens of ungood ones, and it's very hard to find a goodest leader. We don't have a great crop of leaders around at the moment. And, you know, after you've discussed Jacinda Ardern for the fourth time, you begin to think, yes. you know, these are, these are not, this is not a, a great time for political leadership. I really do think we need to find our politicians in a different way in the future. And from Oh, and from well, I empathize with you. I think I agree. I, Mo Ibrahim, who runs that uh, Africa Governance Index, I know mm. it's been a few years, I think, since he made his award yeah. for goodest leader. So perhaps instructive of the quality of leadership all over the world at present. Three, a question I think you'll struggle to answer, but I'm going to ask you nonetheless, the most inspiring leader that you've encountered? Well, in, in, a, in a way, all of them. And I'll tell you why as quickly as I can, because I, I've worked with politicians all my professional life. And I don't share what most people seem to think about politicians, that they're all rogues and villains. I'm actually quite inspired by the fact that close up, once you get to know them, the vast majority of them genuinely are motivated by a sense of public service. Something happens to them in office. And, uh, you know, it would take forever to explain that. 
But I'm inspired by the fact that they're that they're there, that they continue to want to be politicians despite the the, the, the risks and all the rest of it, uh, which is why I'm able to carry on doing my job of working with these people because I find it somewhat inspirational that, that we still have people who are prepared to do that job. Yes, well, that's very reassuring. My own um, observations working with some leaders has, has been exactly that. I coined a term, and I'm not sure it does justice, but prisoners in their own palace. The system yes. strangles a lot of good initiative. Finally, you make a reference in your book that the vast majority of us are still naughty children at heart. You're about to go on holiday. I wonder Mm. what naughty child moment you will indulge in on your holiday next week. Well, nothing very exciting. I don't have an awful lot of exciting vices, I'm afraid. I'll probably just be eating too much. (laughs) Well, that's a childlike naughtiness. Great. Well, listen, Simon, I wish you a wonderful holiday. Thank you for spending as much time as you have with us today. I'm going to make a final plug for your book, The Good Country Equation. It's available at all good bookstores, so please go out and buy it. I promise you you'll be both amused and enlightened. Thank you, Marcus.